Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast in this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. I met Chu T. Jansen in New York when she was interviewing a senior American business executive about financial and economic issues important to both China and the U.S. I was so impressed by her professionalism and keen intellect and the unbelievably stunning outfit she wore that I made a point of connecting. Chu T. is truly a Renaissance woman born in Taiwan of a Chinese father who came there from mainland China before the revolution. You'll hear the story of how her father was determined that his children would receive the best of the best education, which resulted in her receiving a degree from Taiwan University, but that was just the beginning, then a master's in comparative literature at the University of Michigan, studying as a Ph.D. candidate at Yale in literature and art history, and since that wasn't enough, she also received a law degree from Columbia University. She's practiced law at top-tier U.S. firms, had a stint in investment banking, and formed a company called China Happenings, a multimedia platform focused on lifestyle and cultural industries of contemporary China. She recently published a memoir that's become an instant hit in mainland China called Create Your Star Power. And I should also mention that her personal clothing style is regarded as truly and gorgeously unique. She's remarkable, and I'm sure her book, available now only in Chinese, will become published in English as well. Her story is that compelling. Chu Ti speaks English, Mandarin, conversational French, some German, and she says fair Japanese. I know you'll be fascinated by her take on history, the media business, high fashion, millennials, all with an eye on both Asia and the West. She feels we have a ways to go in terms of having authentic conversation between China and the West quoting Rudyard Kipling from his Ballad of the East and West written over a century ago, she says, The vocabulary that we have today, at least in this part of the world, has not really made much progress since 1889 that Kipling published his famous poems, East is East, West is West, and the two twins never met. Chuti and I talk about that and much, much more. Chuti, thanks for coming on our Conversation 360 podcast, especially this Asia and the West episode. Thank you, Susan, for having me. So when we talk about the conversations taking place in and between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind for you? I felt uh, there was not a real conversation. Rather, there are a lot of crisscrossed dialogues. First thing, uh, first thing that came to my mind would be like biannual dialogue between the U.S. and Chinese governments. They are very formal, full of political posturing, but I feel there are more needed conversations on an individual basis, uh, on more frankly, friendly terms to encourage people to really have a very easygoing, relaxed, you know, exchange. Has the dialogue shifted over the past decade? Have you seen? Not much, surprisingly. Uh, let me give you, a, you an example. A few years ago, I started um, connecting uh, myself with Jerry Kushner's New York, uh, New York Observer. 
at the time, they started a new magazine uh, called NYO Magazine. It was uh, before we actually formed a joint venture to publish a bilingual magazine called uh, Yue Magazine. In my first installment of my sort of a column called China Happenings for the magazine, I was actually talking about the contemporary Chinese art scene and using it as a sort of a, a window to look at what's transforming China today. When the, the, the article was published, it was alarming to me that the editor, without consulting me, had you know, changed the title to East Meets West. And I have to confess to you that it's a very hackneyed title. Mm. And if you know me enough, I hate to do anything that's, you know, trite or hackneyed. Especially, I try to pick up a very unique angle, a small thing to decide, a nuanced discussion. And that's what I also think a real conversation should be nuanced. Not always such a big sweep. In other words, when I speak to you or speak with you, it doesn't have to be a dialogue between China and the, the USA. We are just two persons. So, but that incident, incident taught me about the vocabulary that we have today, at least in this part of the world, has not really made much progress since 1889 that Kipling, you know, published his famous poems. East is East, West is West, and the two twin never met. And I think that concept sort of grows on us, and then we have never been able to transcend to that. Yeah. You have such a remarkable story on a lot of levels, and I'm fascinated by the one that you started to tell me about your family heritage in China. Mm -hmm. I know you recently learned that your family, when they left for Taiwan, left behind an amazing, extraordinary heritage home of about 250,000 square feet. Somehow it had escaped destruction, and you and your brother recently held a banquet there for, what, 900 of your relatives who are still living there. Mm -hmm. Tell us that story, and the fact that you didn't know about it for so long. That's yeah, fascinating. I have to give you a little bit of the background. My father left China in two, uh, 1947 two years uh, before the communist takeover of China. Then subsequently, he married a Taiwanese woman, my mother. My mother was born and raised in Taiwan. So in Taiwan, there's a special term for these type of kids that we are uh, like a melange, a mixture of yam or sweet potato and taro. You know, both are similar, but they're both root vegetables, but they are distinct, you know. So I'm, I'm born as a mixture, so to speak. And I grew up with my father, knowing my father as an education freak. So if you look at my educational background, you may feel, oh, it's impressive enough. But I could go on and tell you that my brother has a PhD from Harvard in, you know, math. My sister has a PhD in chemistry from University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So long story short, all of my siblings, or both of my siblings and I married someone who has a PhD from a high, you know, education uh, institution in, in the U.S. And by while we grew up in foreign countries. So 
I had a very ambivalent feeling about that upbringing because my father was really a, a tiger dad, so to speak. All the disciplines and the sense of purposefulness that I have inherited from him or grew up with him. So by the time that I studied uh, in the U.S., I had a little bit of a very westernized outlook, so to speak. So one time my, my mother visited me uh, at Yale and she brought a collection of poems published by my, one of my distant relatives who already passed away. So at the time I really laughed. I said, I mean, my world, you know, was full of Shakespeare, Spencer. How would I bother to read a country, you know, scholar's poems and written in Chinese? Okay, so you can really imagine the relationship I had with my father, you know, and the old, something old that I left behind. So after my father passed away in 2009, I promised my mother to go with her to go back to visit my hometown. And really, at that time, I didn't know anything about, you know, what's there. You had never been there. No, no. And my father only mentioned some sort of a small facts, but never told me the story about the home. And not to say the home is like now the largest residential compound in the entire China. I'm not talking about in that province, but the entire China. So just before I was leaving for China, on one Saturday in my New York apartment, I started looking for so some information about my hometown. So after hours of research, I chanced upon a blogger who wrote about uh, his visit to this, you know, impressive compound, you know, and it's uh, the, the massive with close to 900 relatives, you know, by the last name Liu, which was my maiden name, still live in the compound. And I had no idea if it's my hometown. So I called my mother, you know, after the, the difference of time um, being accounted for. My mother had no idea. Then I kept on reading more at the blog, and it had more than 50 pictures. I suddenly chanced upon a picture uh, of a few headshots. You know, it's a, it's a, a scene from the, from the compound. Uh, the ancestor home saying that these are the overseas students from the family. So I saw a picture which, you know, looked like my sister. And then another picture looked like, like my brother. Then I saw my own picture. Uh, that was when I graduated from Columbia. I cried because I suddenly realized my father did that for us. The reason why we wanted to go back and host a banquet was we were inducted, so to speak, to the, um, ancestor home. You know, we had a place in the ancestor home. So that was something that's really just something. And then my father never really told me so much about it. And long story short, uh, it's not only that it, the size of the home, but rather the family story, how the house was founded. It was, uh, it has more than 262 years of history built under the Qianlong Emperor reign. But not only that, since the founding of that branch of the family with this house, there has been a common property. It's a paddy, a rice paddy 
the income generated from the rice paddy would be used as scholarship to support the family members, the kids who are good at school. So I suddenly realized that's where I came from. The, my education freak father, you know, the whole value system. But obviously, you know, the reason why this is a particular interesting story is if you look at the contemporary Chinese society, your father may be a butcher, your father may be a tycoon. They all want their kids to go to Beijing University, to go to Tsinghua, to go to Harvard. So I think it's real a window to really understand what's still going on. I think about uh, two, two or three weeks ago when China the, the entrance college entrance examinations uh, result have come out. You can really see each province has their own number one student. Okay, the the one who hit the highest score. The way they celebrated the the success of this number one, the ceremonial nature of it. If you look at it. It's right out of two or three hundred, five hundred, one thousand years ago. It's the same ceremony, the way they dress up, etc. So it's very interesting that part. Given today, the hierarchy of the, the social status of different professions have already changed. It used to be scholars was the number one, the businessman. It used to be the businessman. Now the businessman was has been, you know, it's a as a category has been selected. As the idols of the younger generation, but then you still have this twist of you know emphasizing that scholarly cultural you know or value. Well, that brings up a couple of things. One is this focus on education, and much of it uh, is that people really want a lot of people want their kids to go to school in the West mm -hmm. because they admire that that approach to education, which you've of course experienced. And I'm very interested in it because whenever I talk to people in China about Chinese schools, they point out that it still is very much a, a pattern of rote learning. It's to pass exams. And for that reason, when it, since it hasn't changed much, is that they are interested in this kind of critical thinking that they think comes about when you question authority and actually put yourself in a mode of what if, as opposed to here are the things you need to know and, and just memorize them. I'm fascinated by that because if we think that the kind of critical thinking that is taught at schools in the West primarily, although it's being taught more and more in parts of Asia and certainly China too, mm -hmm. if we think that's where innovation comes from and that the secret to China's future is going to be innovation, if that's the case, and I'd be curious as to what you think, then where does it come from? Is the educational system going to shift? Or are there going to be more and more kids who get educated in the West and then they come here and they influence the way people think and the way they approach problems? I think it will come from both. First of all, this is a complex subject which I dealt with in my memoir or book. The reason being that I actually came from an educational background which was even more traditional than the current Chinese society. I come from Taiwan. Most of Chinese know that even in Taiwan, we had uh, the way I was brought up, we had an even more traditional Chinese upbringing than currently practiced in China. Here they use, uh, in China, they use simplified characters. We still use traditional characters. Oh. Okay. And, and then when I grew up, I memorized thousands of points. Okay. 
So the question is, you know, I ask that question, you know, whether this rote memory in our process make you stupid or make you smart. And I think it really depends on disciplines. Recently, there's also an interesting survey about the kids who succeeded in China's college exam, uh, entrance exams, like a top one or two, and whether it was an indicator, how successful they were in life. And I think it's very consistent with my own observation. It really depends on which discipline. Like me, for example, uh, the way I approach my, my even current entrepreneurship, it has a lot of cultural underpinnings to it. Okay. If you are talking about liberal arts, etc., those analyticals, to have those road learnings, it gives you a very solid base, you know, that you, you will not have. And therefore, a lot of people ask me, you know, why did you pick the road now you, you are choosing rather than, you know, the, a high paid job as a lawyer? Because I could tell many people for a fact that very few people who will have the same degree of knowledge or immersion in the Western culture, but then still with the same learning about the traditional Chinese cultures, meaning I could read ancient texts back to two or 3,000 years ago. Very few Chinese today could actually do that. So I take it as my mission, you know, because I know this generation, they won't have the, the luxury, you know, no one will force them, you know, to do that in their childhood. And, uh, so this is fascinating, and I'm especially interested because if the current millennials in China are people for, for whom that book becomes fascinating reading, that's, that could have a major impact because when you think about the fact that anybody born in China in the last 30 years has seen nothing but this new China with exponential growth mm -hmm. up until very recently when there's been this slowdown economically. And that means that they have, for the most part, lived, brought, been brought up in a totally different world than the ones in which their parents worked and toiled in many cases. So the underground underpinnings that might have been apparent in other cultures where it hasn't been so disruptive and so exponentially different are absent. So it could be that you help them form the very foundation that some of them seem to have an appetite for or are hungry for. Am I just, is that wishful thinking on my part, or is that part And that's definitely uh, the hope. But I also cautioned that the objective that I was trying to accomplish in writing this book is not to impose my own sense of value. I hope to give them a, a framework that they could examine their own options. Uh, for example, the other part of the coin, side of the coin, is they, if they are into science, into engineering, or even, you know, with genome decoding, you know, they might be a different educational background, which is more conducive to that type of learning. And one has to learn which is the part that fits you. And I think the, the problem is the younger generation, on the one hand, they have many more choices, or they are born into a more privileged background, and they were encouraged from day one to start their own company, so to speak. On the other hand, I also can be sympathetic to the fact that they were born as a one-child emperor. On the other hand, they turn around, they found out they are just one uh, dime in a dozen. And that's a very typical situation now in China, that in the past few years, actually, the educational um, education institutions 
uh, have already increased in number exponentially, but the competition is also getting tougher. They produce more graduates, so the job market is relatively more difficult. So I think a lot of Chinese, uh, the younger generation, so they have to figure out because no one is, can tell them for a fact that the, the value system one way will lead to another. So they have to determine. And then after all, if everybody is trying to do, uh, is into big data, everybody is trying to write their own APP, you know, killer application. At one point, you know, it's, there's nothing because everybody's doing the same thing. Everybody's talking about O2O, office to office services. So they have to figure out what's the best for them and to figure out how to get the best from the different, you know, educational systems. This is a really fascinating issue and is a crucially important one because of the size of China and the number of young people we're talking about and the opportunities, and yet the challenges that they face. I'm sure that this slowing down of the economy has someone worried. I mean, they probably think, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't continue to grow this much, and now I have competition, and a lot of it, and how am I going to place myself in there? I'm, I'm fascinated by this interest you have in the connection between the intellectual and the commercial. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, fashion. I know having, when I met you, that you had a very unusual outfit on. And you said, every one of my outfits tells a story. Mm -hmm. So narrative seems to wend its way through everything you're up to. T tell me about this connection between the intellectual and the commercial and how that plays out in the fashion area. Mm -hmm. I came from a very intellectual background. In my book, I talked about when I grew up, I never had a doll. Uh, my father bought me a complete set of uh, homes, you know, the detective stories when I was six. So I grew up reading a lot of detective stories. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. And so then uh, after I was in my primary school, my father bought a whole complete set of the, all the Nobel winning literary literatures. You know, so you can really see I come from that kind of very scholarly background. So with that kind of intellectual underpinnings, I wanted to do something which has real impact. But I realized fast enough that once I got into the media world, it's all commerce, especially we are in a sort of radically transforming industry, right? It used to be that uh, journalism is respected for the integrity and professionalism. But left and right, now a lot of journalistic or media enterprises, they are basically have to leash on to another businesses. And uh, in other words, media is just a tool. It itself is not self-sufficient. Give you an example. A few years ago when I started writing again after I quit law practicing, the money I got as a writer was the same as when I wrote at 11 years old in Taiwan for newspaper. I already started, I was a very uh, precautious uh, writer. That just tells you people are not paying for quality writing, period. That's the truth. With that, you have a lot of consequences. So I'm very cognizant about how if I need to get my words out, I need to make it 
work as a business model. So fashion-wise, it's almost like an intuition because I'm a little bit of an uh, art animal in 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 the sense that when I was a lawyer, I really dressed the part. But I always knew that I I have this sort of I have an eye for fashion. So after I quit practicing law, I feel like I wanted to be myself for one day, and with time. The way I dressed myself started getting attention, so I got into a lot of red carpet, etc. And then with that, people started to be curious about what I what I wear, especially not sponsored by commercial interests, which is very rare because in today's world, people typically have you know a brand or you know or they have a someone bankrolled. Their outfits and often not really representative of who they are. Yeah, it, it, it's not about style. For example,、um, the the dress that you saw me is by a Greek designer, Mary Cataranzu. She's based in London. She's known for using digital prints, and I dress that. I wore that dress. Just I put it on just right before the event because I suddenly realized that、uh, it's a smart play on pinstripe. Because underneath this very flowery pattern, ornate jewelry pattern, below it, it's this very pronounced pinstripe. And remember, I come from Wall Street. Wearing pinstripe is a status, a statement of power. Coincidentally, Mr.、Uh, Wilbur Ross also wore wore a pinstripe suit that day, so it was bingo. So I, you know, I, I, in my book, I talked about. For me,、uh, dressing or wearing something it shows one's taste or style, which is again are not popular terms in today's vernacular because people just want to get attention. But I thought, you know, it's important to have a sense of style, you know. And sometimes you may be able to tell a story very indirectly because people are always visual. I love that.、Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the young people that that you'll be addressing. How much do you know about young people and the way they're thinking in China now? It, their their、uh, willingness to speak up to authority and ask questions. You know, when we were talking before about the educational system and and the developing critical thinking, is that developing on its own? Are people speaking up about stuff? My sense is that the government has paid some real attention and is doing something in the. Area of pollution, for example, and I'm wondering if that's partly because people have really been speaking up about it. It's a pretty transparent world. You can take pictures of stuff. And yeah, I think、it. gradually.、Uh, last year, a friend of mine actually did a sort of a charitable project that they are、uh, doing a video consisting of a sort of a famous pop singer, and they sing about the pollution, but make it in a almost a funny way. So hip hop way, and so I think there are many different projects that I think people learn how to use social media and different ways to express themselves.、Uh, although I sometimes I want to caution because China's social media really becomes its own animal. It's in a proportion that we can hardly imagine in the West. I would say in China the way they process information. The way the social media works and how they connect, or or、uh, even the trans、uh, transmission of like a TV or movie projects, they are already going to a different world because they 
directly leapfrog to a different stage. And now it's getting in a way that it's a very complex, and in a way it also creates a, a sense of、uh, opposite result. I think in the past people wanted to have a soapbox on which they could articulate their opinion. Now I think in a way people find out when everyone is standing on a soapbox, nobody is getting hurt. Right, because they are—it's just a cacophony.、Uh, let me give you another example. Recently, I saw—I chanced upon a news article about a very prominent、uh, Chinese movie star. She's already has already transformed herself into a producer and film director, very very well respected. I don't know if it's by her own efforts or because of her marriage. She's pinned as one of the richest. You know, couple or women in China,、uh, I think she's definitely billionaire o-、uh, over, along with her husband's assets. So, long story short, in that context,、uh, readers start to discover that a lot of internet porters or internet economic、uh, commerce players, because of the sheer power of their influences and also the Channels they have to distribute their very varied products. They actually could use their commercial powers to basically censor contents. Okay, so now finally people are getting it because operating in a Western world, I'm always cognizant. Today it's not what whatever I write, I just go out and write. I have to find a way to distribute distribute my ideas to make that very an effective exercise. So in that process, I have to encounter, of course, commercial interests. I may not encounter a government sponsored you know censorship, but I have to deal with the you know from a commercial front. So now China, a lot of web we call it、uh, denizen, they start to face that. You know, sense that issue. So again, I what I'm just trying to say is there are a lot of complexities in various phenomena, and one needs to dig further to really understand. You know, a lot of nuances. Yeah. So with this cacophony, with all this noise out there, which is true in the Western world as well,、mm-hmm. what is the answer? Are young people finding? Are they? Are they figuring this out and gravitating towards another way to express themselves, or are we still at the stage of everybody's just getting overwhelmed by all this stuff? I think the、um, they are trying to figure out a way and whether to have a more trustworthy gatekeepers of information. I don't think you could superimpose from the top, but whether they could develop from their own. But a lot of younger, more so for.、Um, Up, up and coming、uh, or intelligent millennials, I sense that they they start to feel the need because it's not that easy. You know, I have seen many people who had gone through their own startups and who were disillusioned. They thought the world was still、uh, oyster, but they realize that they need some actual experiences and you know this to gain some solid experiences or education. So,、yeah. what about the increased pressure regarding privacy? Because that has a play in here—not necessarily censorship, but the—you know—in the West, we're so obsessed with people finding out 
information about us and we try to protect our personal data and so on. Is that as much an issue in China as it is here? Yeah, but there's an irony, right? Because look at everyone trying to exhibit themselves, himself through social media. Right? It's insane. Yeah. It's, yeah. So I, I think the, this whole question about asking for privacy while simultaneously need to expose themselves, I think it's a very, very complex process because as I told you, I mean, today, because, uh, we, uh, a lot of Chinese, we use uh, WeChat. It's one of the, very powerful messaging platforms coming out of China. And in many sense, I think it's more powerful than, you know, the Western equivalent. And then within that application, you have a friend's circles. You could post something that your friends will all know about it. So it's a more defined circles than Facebook, you know, like public facing. It's like an inner circles. And I have friends who just 24 hours, they were posting their own pictures in all possible embarrassing you know, situation. But I don't think they post it because it's embarrassing to, to make fun of themselves. They really thought it's flattering. So I think this really this sense of transgression, self self-transgressed boundary that loss between the outside and inside is particularly interesting. And therefore I think it it's if you look at what the younger generation now are moving towards, the VR. Because in a sense, they are living in a virtual reality world. Even if it's real, they treat it as if it's unreal, right? If it's unreal, then it doesn't have this stigma. They don't feel they are expo- overexposing themselves. Well, Pokemon yeah. Go, the current fad is a good example of that. This mixture of augmented or virtual reality and the real thing. I think um, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm especially curious when we talk about and, and I'm fascinated by what you said about East meets West because I did think that it was the the fact that it has been so hackneyed that it was sort of fascinating to me because I think they never have truly met. The twain hasn't really met yet, as you said. But I'm interested that more and more the idea of geographical boundaries seems to be not so important because many young people, many people mm-hmm. feel that they are global citizens. Mm-hmm. And it's those who learn that, in fact, there is a whole world of people that are in communication with each other, even if they have met, maybe never physically, but that they have this connection with each other, that that will have real impact on the opportunities for us to communicate more effectively with other parts of the world, especially between these two parts, which are both superpowers in their own way. So. I'm going to assume, especially because of this book that's coming out, that you have a real sense of optimism about China's future. So what's the biggest source of your optimism? I think um, China has the brain power behind it. Once it figures out that everything is like a double-edged sword, um, for example, if you look at the Olympics, it's a game, it's like an ocean of people. That's what Zhang Yimo was good at, right? You cannot compete anything, but if you have a massive dance by this huge number of people, and I think this is a wonderful metaphor because Chinese are keenly aware of the fact that this is their core strength. That's why they become the world's factory, right? But now 
that's also the, the 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 biggest challenge because you have so many people. You always pull down the number, right? You always have a bigger denominator, right? It dilutes the 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 effect of your growth. China is as big in terms of geographical size as the United States or Europe. And inside, even though China, since the past two or three thousand years, we already had a very unified written language. And now we have the unified spoken language, official language. But still, region-wise, they varied a lot. And so, whatever you think, oh, if you look at the number, the GDP is not still not as high. But then that also means that if you look at the pockets of wealth, you have enough of consumers of luxury goods. So whenever you want to look at it into China, you always have to look at these two China, two China's you know phenomena. It's like you really have these two worlds. So in terms of business opportunities, it's still big enough, even though not you know on average level you don't have the same kind of income level yet. But if you look at the pockets, the number of people. You know enough to consume certain products. You 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 are definitely there, and uh, in terms of the receptiveness of digital equipments or cultures, they are definitely ahead of us. So because they skip, it's just by by definition they skip one step. They were able to leapfrog precisely, yeah, yeah. precisely. But wasn't there before? Uh, they just jumped over it. Mm-hmm. So I get your optimism. So what will the biggest challenges be? One is you said just the sheer numbers of people. Yeah, I think you are you asking about internally or to to deal with the West. I'm no, I'm asking internal how how China its future, forgetting the West for the moment, just how it will fare. What its biggest challenges will be? I think there are two fronts. One is they are always competing needs, right? Because it's not that. China, Chinese society or the Chinese government are not for, uh, reform or, you know, uh, modernize the, for example, the financial system. But there are different parts of the societies that they also have to account for. So which one will take the priority? On the other hand, I also think that it starts it went, it goes back to our, the sort of a beginning of our conversation. I think China is really open to have a conversation with the rest of the world, but there are always going to be this noise or challenges because the West will always want to talk about human rights and environmental violations, etc. And China would like to have Maybe a different ways of engage in that conversations, not feeling always being you know scolded for not being the West, and I think that's the tough part because if you look at a lot of like a, even recent territorial dispute about the Southern Sea, you will see the Chinese, the the people who live in China, they obviously have a different perspective, you know, independently of the government, from what the people in the West would have. So how to have that interesting dialogue or conversation going on? Or, you know, another example is, uh, if you read about the economist's recent report about China or other reports about China, it's always very interesting to me that they will highlight certain facts, 
But the question, for example, the one thing they talked about was um, there were some nationalistic sentiments in China, particularly in their reportage about the West. But just based on my reading of the Chinese news in China, sometimes of course they will also have some West, you know, Western bashing language. On the other hand, there's enough counterbalancing, countervailing import of American pop cultures or movies, etc. So at least they know both worlds. They will not imagine the West has been poor or ill-educated, right? So the problem now we have to have a real conversation, and that's what I hope I will be able to contribute to that uh, conversation, is in the West, we tend to only have one side. You know, it's not like, you know, Whatever we say about China is all false, but rather because we so focus on one side of the uh, issues or the phenomena, we often forget that we don't have, you know, how many people here actually watch Chinese, you know, um, movies, televisions, right? While the Chinese, they all know about Sex in the City, Gossip Girl. So what I'm saying is that we have a very imbalanced situation, the knowledge base. When Steve Schwartzman set up a scholarship at the Beijing University about a few years ago, it's his version of Rose Scholars. Okay, he had the Schwartzman Scholars. He said for every eight Chinese students studying in the, in, in the U.S., we only have one, one American student in China. So I still think there's an imbalance in our flow of information and interest. And therefore, I hope with time that will change and therefore the, the conversation will be more free flowing and less sort of uh, always been like pitting Chinese view against the, the Western view. Well, I think you know I feel the same way. So I'm hoping that these curated conversations may do play some role in that. Are, are there any other issues that you'd like to mention regarding this whole East-West phenomenon, something that you think is important that we haven't touched on? No, I just wanted to um, mention, because this is the area that's dear to my mind, that in the past two years, Chinese investors or strategic or financial investors have really, you know, broken into Hollywood. The reason why this is important is when commerce starts to impact the cultural productions, you will start to have its own snowballing effect. Uh, this year, Warcraft didn't garner very high box office opening in the States, but it was a very strong run, run from the beginning and in China, the cultural taste. So I think now there are more and more collaborative models between China and the, the West or, you know, even Chinese with uh, Korean cultural industries. But as they currently collaborate, they still bifurcate it or they divide the market. They are not made, you know, for example, they collaborate on a film project, but it's meant for the Chinese audience because they still have a different sense of aesthetics or narrative styles. With time, we are going to see more and more interesting interactions. And that in itself is very fascinating to me. Oh, it is to me as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, thank you, Chiyoti. It's been a delight to share your perspectives.
If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.